As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is Stuart England, The Civil Wars, Episode 2.110, The Return of the King. In late February 1660, London and much of the rest of England celebrated the end of the Rump Parliament. It was the culmination of a months-long movement for a free parliament, marked by street protests in various towns and cities, and petitioning campaigns organized by county elites. Historian Blair Warden argues that the broad faith placed in a free parliament to solve England's ills refuted Thomas Hobbes's claim that societies naturally look to an all-powerful sovereign to provide security. When anarchy and perpetual instability threatened England, its people sought salvation not from a dictator, but from a parliament. Certainly, the spring of 1660 provides plenty of evidence that the ideology of parliaments had deep roots in the psyche of English men and women. But the reintroduction of the excluded members on the 21st of February did not by itself produce the free parliament of popular imagination. It was only the first step in a process whereby the newly populated House of Commons, guided by George Monk, organized fresh elections before dissolving itself. By initiating that process, Westminster and Monk forced England to grapple with practical matters that had been conveniently left out of the idealistic rhetoric of free parliaments. For instance, what exactly was this free parliament going to do to save England? And what would that England look like? Although I've been foreshadowing the Free Parliament movement as an inevitably royalist one, that was only true for some of its advocates. The magic of a Free Parliament was that it had the power to legitimize just about anything. Parliament could take the opportunity to restore the one form of government that had provided the closest thing to stability over the past 20 years, the Protectorate. Who was to say that Richard Cromwell couldn't thrive now that the men who had undermined his regime were banished from power? The deposed Lord Protector still had a loyal ally in John Thurlow, the old spymaster. But behind the scenes, other Cromwellians, like Roger Boyle or Edward Montagu, had already started reaching out to the exiled Stuarts. A more plausible scenario could be built around George Monk, by far the most influential figure in English politics at the moment. What was to stop Monk from using his tremendous power to have himself named Lord Protector, in the mold of Oliver Cromwell? After all, as we've seen, the two men shared quite a similar political philosophy. Monk's intentions are, as ever, impossible to discern for certain, but the general was astute enough to perceive that his position wasn't as strong as it appeared on the surface. He had done a masterful job of riding the Free Parliament movement into his current position as the hero of England, but he was also aware that just weeks earlier, Arthur Hasselrig had been cheered through the streets of London when the restored rump replaced the military rule of the Committee of Safety. Hasselrig had mistakenly assumed that the rump regime was backed by popular acclaim. He quickly discovered his error, the second he threw up roadblocks on the path to free elections. 
Monk would not make the same mistake. Hasselrig had thought he could use popular demands for change to justify a rearrangement of power within the existing system. Monk saw that his continued influence over events depended on him staying true to the principles of a free parliament. That meant the excluded members returning to Westminster had but one mission, to finally dissolve the long parliament and call for new, open elections. If that led to a restoration of the monarchy, as Monk and many others increasingly suspected, then it was time to come to terms with that reality. The one group that still required a bit of convincing were the previously excluded members Monk had ushered back to Westminster. On the morning before they were restored, Monk had been clear with them. Their job was to dissolve the session, not act like the rumpers and prolong their own political power. But while dissolving the session sounded simple enough, there were technical details to take care of, creating opportunities for rump-like behavior. For three weeks, the restored members, the minority of rumpers, and George Monk conducted high-pressure yet subtle negotiations. It's worth noting that many of the restored members had been prominent men in the Presbyterian faction when they were purged back in 1648. At the time, they had been conducting negotiations with King Charles I, hashing out a settlement based on a constitutionally constrained monarchy and a Calvinist national church. For many of these men, there was a temptation to continue that work now. Sure, this would all be confirmed by a new parliament, but why not establish the basic structure of the political settlement now, while they had prominent seats at the table? The opportunity came in those technical details I mentioned earlier. Before dissolving itself, Parliament had to set the ground rules for the new elections and clarify England's government in the interim. After all, for at least four or five weeks, there would be no Parliament in session. As you may recall, failing to handle that tricky bit of business had led to the final break between Cromwell and the Rump back in 1653. As Parliament went about its business in late February and early March, there were subtle signs that the new order was already taking shape. On the 2nd of March, all references to the Commonwealth were removed from the Parliamentary Committee on Revenue. On the surface, this was a fairly innocuous matter of procedural language, but the implication was impossible to miss. If England was no longer a Commonwealth, what was it? A kingdom? It was the first tentative sign that the basic form of government was up for debate. The next day, Parliament ordered the release of three Royalist Lords, held in the Tower of London since the Civil War. Two days after that, on the 5th, John Lambert took their place. An unrepentant Republican, the charismatic general was a serious threat to the emerging order. That same day, London was flooded with republished copies of the Solemn League and Covenant, the alliance the Presbyterians had negotiated with the Scots back in 1643. One of its key provisions, a national Calvinist church without bishops, was also one of the central themes of the Presbyterian negotiations with the king in 1648. But what caught the eye of many readers was the clause of the covenant that called on those who swore it to defend the monarchy. Back in 1643, this had been uncontroversial. No one had imagined that the Civil War would overthrow the very concept of the crown. But in 1660, the reference to monarchy jumped off the page. These moves towards openly discussing the restoration of the monarchy produced a backlash. On the 7th of March, the remaining Republicans in Parliament demanded that the House of Commons pass a motion expressly stating that England would not be governed by the king and the lords. But they were a distinct minority. The motion was defeated. More troublingly, that same day, Monk received impassioned pleas from his officers. Surely this was not what they had fought for. Unlike their general, many of them had not made peace with the return of the Stuarts. Publicly, Monk remained uncommitted, determining England's government was a job for a free parliament, not a soldier like himself. Some of his men demanded that he take a clearer stance. With the active support of his officers assured, Monk would never have a better opportunity to impose his will on Parliament. But if the Republicans in the army were hoping to force Monk to intervene at Westminster, they were rudely disappointed. 
Rather than following their advice, Monk scolded his officers for continuing to meet in councils, as if they had a role to play in governance. Nothing was more injurious to discipline, the general decreed, than their meeting in military councils to interpose on civilian things. The project currently underway could not afford to be tainted by military interference. Monk's rejection of the kind of army politics that had hung over England for 15 years was decisive. For the first time since the Civil War itself, soldiers would not play a direct role in a moment of fundamental constitutional change. But if Monk successfully neutralized the republican impulses of his men, he also worked to frustrate the designs of the Presbyterians in Parliament. Perhaps the most controversial issue facing Westminster was how free the free elections should be. As we've seen, every election since 1640 had been marked by some kind of political restriction. Both candidates and voters faced a variety of tests, of their religious views, their political loyalties, or past behavior. Those who failed were excluded from voting or serving in Parliament. A free Parliament certainly implied an end to such restrictions. But that was political rhetoric. No one meant it to be taken literally. Property qualifications obviously remained in place, as did restrictions on Catholic participation in politics. Where Parliament got bogged down was on the question of unrepentant royalists. Everyone agreed that the rump had been far too restrictive in its electoral policy, and no one wanted a repeat of Oliver Cromwell excluding vast swaths of Parliament men on a whim. But was Westminster really prepared to offer full political liberties to royalists who had taken up arms against Parliament? Men who, for years, had been considered traitors to England? The Parliament men hesitated to go that far. To be a bit cynical about it, many of them were Presbyterians, who hoped to reopen talks with Charles II on the same terms they had established with Charles I, 12 years earlier. Certainly some kind of settlement with the exiled king would be a winner at the polls. The only danger, from the Presbyterian perspective, was if an openly royalist electorate voted in men willing to scrap their compromise settlement and introduce a kind of absolute monarchy. Monk frowned on these shenanigans and reminded the men at Westminster that they were there to usher in a free parliament, not a kind of free parliament. After a week of heated back and forth, parliament landed on a compromise. There would be no restrictions on royalist voters, but any candidate who had taken up arms against parliament would be considered ineligible. But this was a compromise in name only. Once parliament was dissolved, Monk was the only man capable of enforcing such restrictions, which he had no intention of doing. And once members were seated, only the new parliament had the power to resolve any contested elections. Monk had once again scored a political victory. The officers in London were personally loyal to him, so much so that he was able to neutralize their inherent Republican sympathies. When he refused their pleas to intervene at Westminster, the matter was effectively settled. It helped that John Lambert, the one man capable of rallying the Republican cause within the army, was safely stowed in the Tower of London. Meanwhile, Monk had held firm with the Presbyterians in Parliament. If they wanted to reopen the 1648 talks with the Stuarts, they would have to do so in a free Parliament, not from their current temporary position of disproportionate influence. Unwilling to repeat the mistakes of the Rumpers, the Presbyterians backed down and prepared to take their case to the people of England. On the 16th of March, the Long Parliament finally dissolved, this time of its own volition. Election writs went out for a new Parliament, to be opened on the 25th of April, in five and a half weeks. As you can imagine, this was a fairly consequential election season. But the drama reached even greater heights on the 10th of April, when John Lambert made a daring escape from his cell in the Tower of London. Having convinced the serving maid to act as a decoy in his bed, Lambert climbed out a window and shimmied down a rope, making for freedom. He immediately spread word that he was organizing yet another insurrection, a last-ditch attempt to save the Republican cause. There were rumors of risings developing in Somerset, Nottinghamshire, and Leicestershire, 
and the old rumper Edmund Ludlow was spotted plotting in his home county of Wiltshire. The centerpiece was a muster, Lambert called, for the 22nd of April, just days before the new parliament was set to begin. His choice of location was symbolic, the battlefield at Edge Hill, the first major confrontation of the Civil War. But the response to Lambert's call to arms was underwhelming. Only six troops of horse showed up, and no infantry. If republicanism had ever held popular appeal in England by the spring of 1660, that time had passed. It didn't help that the city of London supplied the new government with a timely loan, a form of aid that had been refused the Committee of Safety and the Rump. The money was used to cover the back pay owed to much of the army. In the absence of the major grievance that had always driven unrest in the army, Lambert found it difficult to drum up support. Many soldiers were happy to take their paychecks and settle into a retirement from army life. When Monk sent an army to deal with Lambert, the result was anticlimactic. After a brief skirmish, Lambert and his men surrendered. The general returned to captivity. Perhaps an even surer sign that the Republican cause was dead was the reaction of Arthur Hasselrig. The diehard rumper finally admitted defeat. He publicly denied any involvement in Lambert's scheme, and as a reward was allowed to quietly recede into private life. In a sense, April 1660 marked a dramatic shift in English politics. Despite Lambert's efforts, the nation's future would not be determined by soldiers, but by voters. We've tracked elections throughout this podcast, and one of the major themes has been a move from selections being determined by local affairs to a gradual increase in the importance of national issues. The war in Europe and church affairs played a role in some elections in the 1620s, and the short and long parliament elections of 1640 featured prominent debates on ship money and Charles's personal rule more generally. But by and large, elections were still determined by local issues, concerns, and most of all, patrons. The elections of 1660 were another large step in that process. Really, it was unavoidable. The obvious question on everyone's minds, and really the whole purpose of the forthcoming session at Westminster, was the monarchy. Would the Stuarts be invited back? And on what terms? The 1660 elections were also fairly wide open. There was no government party, since there wasn't really a government per se. In London, more than 40 candidates vied for a slate of four seats. But from the somewhat chaotic election season, a clear pattern can be discerned. Men who were closely attached to the Republican cause, or who refused to accept the return of the monarchy on any terms, did poorly. Prominent rumpers like Edmund Ludlow and Thomas Scott lost their bids for a seat. Arthur Hasselrig didn't even put his name forward. His spirit had already been broken. Even those who were willing to accept the monarchy, but only under strict conditions, were punished at the polls. In Surrey, the electors called out, No rumpers, no Presbyterians that will put bad conditions on the king. Meanwhile, those who aligned themselves with the restoration of the Stuarts, whether officially or unofficially, did well. George Monk, Roger Boyle, and Edward Montagu all secured seats by a comfortable margin. And when London sifted through the massive bodies that put themselves forward as candidates, the four winners were the four that were most clearly allied to the Stuart cause. One of them, John Robinson, was a city alderman who was known to be hosting envoys from the exiled king in London to negotiate terms with the new parliament. Another, Richard Brown, had come out of hiding for the election. Up until a few weeks ago, he was a wanted man for his role in the royalist uprisings of the previous year. Speaking of which, George Booth himself was elected by the people of Cheshire, a fairly unambiguous signal of what the new parliament was expected to accomplish. Neither was voting the only way people expressed their political views. When Edward Massey came to the Gloucester polls as a candidate, the town's army garrison threatened to arrest him. He, after all, was a known traitor who had plotted insurrection less than a year earlier. But when the soldiers moved on Massey, Gloucester's citizens erupted in a riot. 
They successfully defended the man who had saved their town back in 1643, and Massey represented Gloucester at Westminster. Elsewhere, the Republican cause faced more respectable opposition. At Leicester, a party of 200 gentlemen from the surrounding countryside visited town officials, warning them that if they elected Arthur Hasselrig, who had often sat for Leicester in the past, they would no longer spend any of their money in the town. In a sense, the threatened boycott was moot. Hasselrig had already been driven out of politics, but the message was unmistakable. In the end, the elections produced a house full of men open to the restoration of the monarchy in some form. In the analysis of Blair Warden, Parliament gave voice to electors who never would have risked civil war as the price of the king's return. It was a victory for royalism, but not one that could have ever been won on the battlefield. In fact, there was every indication that the new Parliament would not be inclined to drive a hard bargain, as some Presbyterians may have hoped. Half of the new MPs had never sat in Parliament before, and 62 of them had either openly served the royalist cause or were sons of men who had. Technically, by the election rules set down beforehand, these men were ineligible to take their seats. But considering all disputed elections would be settled by the new Parliament after it gathered, it was unlikely these men would be ejected. In fact, they formed a large enough bloc to play an influential role in debate. But no matter what the composition of the Parliament, it had been obvious for quite some time that the discussions at Westminster would be dominated by a single topic, the monarchy. As a result, the exiled king, the self-styled Charles II, began his own preparations while the elections were still ongoing. We haven't visited the king-in-waiting in a while, but he and his advisors had been following events in England quite closely. In the uprisings of August 1659, the exiled royalist court took the dramatic step of backing Presbyterians like George Booth, rather than their traditional allies like the Sealed Knot. In a sense, this was a recognition on Charles's part that his restoration was unlikely to come from outside of England. The protectorate regime was openly allied with France, and after the Battle of the Dunes in 1658, Spain was effectively neutralized as a partner in any restoration. Deprived of all other options, Charles had no choice but to turn to Edward Hyde, who had long advocated for cultivating a broad coalition within England. The failure of Booth's uprising was therefore extremely disheartening for the royalists. Charles had listened to Hyde, and did everything he could to draw in wide-ranging support within England. And still, the regime managed to crush any and all insurrection. There were, however, a few glimmers of hope still visible. In Scotland, George Monk hadn't fully rejected royalist overtures. Meanwhile, in the Navy, Edward Montagu seemed to be hedging his bets too. But even as Monk marched on London in January 1660, it was impossible for royalist agents to determine his intentions. Publicly, Monk claimed a restoration of the monarchy was impossible, but he never fully closed off his private back channels to the Stuarts. Throughout the events covered in the last two episodes, royalist agents slipped into London and tried to figure out the lay of the land. An anxious Charles received their reports in Brussels, his refuge in the Spanish Netherlands. On Hyde's advice, the exiled king ordered his allies to nurture the growing calls for free parliament and discourage diehard royalists from any rash actions that may discredit the Stuart cause. But there was little trust that Monk or the Presbyterian parliament men would really support the return of the king. Charles was therefore tempted when a different opportunity suddenly arose, in Ireland. We last visited Ireland in the middle of December, 1659. As you may recall, a coup displaced the Committee of Safety's government in Dublin, just as the regime's power in England was collapsing. The Irish coup was led by Charles Coote and Hardress Waller, who represented the traditional Anglo-Irish elites. The newly restored rump quickly recognized the coup in Dublin. But like its invitation to George Monk to come to London, this was more a case of the rump accepting reality, rather than authorizing the change in government. Coote and Waller had seized control through calls for a true parliament, 
whether the rump qualified was very much up in the air. In fact, the question of the rump's legitimacy divided the men at the top of the new Dublin regime. Coote adopted a position much like George Monk's. He carefully avoided mentioning the word monarchy, but clearly supported a much broader and permanent settlement than the mere restoration of the rump. Waller, on the other hand, was a devoted Republican, and loudly proclaimed that whatever lay in Britain's future, it didn't include the Stuarts. In this case, Waller's ideological principles aligned with his own self-interest. He had been one of the regicides, who sentenced Charles I to die. Any restoration of the monarchy would involve a lot of forgiving and reconciliation, but Waller doubted that the new king would ever forget the list of names on his father's death warrant. As January turned to February, Waller got more and more nervous. Suspecting that Coote was now committed to the return of the Stuarts, Waller drew up plans for yet another coup, this time against his partner. On the 15th of February, he made his move. But Coote was prepared and enjoyed broad support within the government. Waller and his allies managed to seize Dublin Castle, but were almost immediately bottled up in a siege. Two days later, they surrendered. In the aftermath, Coote announced his full support for Monk's program in England, in other words, a free parliament, and most likely, the return of the Stuarts. But that's not all Coote did, and therein lay the opportunity for Charles in Brussels. Coote sent an envoy to the exiled king, inviting him to Dublin to take up his rightful Irish crown. In effect, Coote had recognized the same thing Bulstrode Whitelock had when he urged Charles Fleetwood to reach out to Charles. If the restoration of the Stuarts was all but inevitable, the key question now was on what terms the monarchy would return, and who would provide the invitation. Coote and his friends had an opportunity here to ensure Ireland's proper place among the restored British kingdoms. This is a key aspect of the scramble towards the restoration. This wasn't to be a restoration at all, at least not in the sense of the clock being wound back to 1641. The Stuarts might be restored to the throne, but Britain would not be restored to its previous state. A new system was about to be crafted, perhaps one that redressed the Irish grievances that had so plagued the old monarchy. New English elites like Coote would never have a better chance to have their voices heard by a sympathetic king, nor could they ever again hope to wield such political leverage. But if Charles was tempted to begin his return tour in Dublin, Edward Hyde quickly stepped in to pour cold water over the idea. The last king had tried to use Ireland to secure his position in England, and the results had been disastrous. Nothing was more likely to ruin the goodwill building around the idea of monarchy in England than some kind of special arrangement with Ireland. The key to this whole operation, Hyde warned Charles, was a monarchy legitimized by a free parliament in England. They couldn't afford to muddy the waters through backroom deals in Dublin. In the end, the king agreed with his longtime advisor. Coote's invitation was politely declined. Charles would put all his eggs in the basket of a free parliament at Westminster. The decision paid immediate dividends, as the April election season confirmed the broad popularity of a settlement that included the monarchy. Suddenly, the exiled king was spoiled for choice when it came to allies. Presbyterians like the Earl of Manchester and Denzel Holes dispatched agents across the English Channel to reopen the negotiations that had been so rudely interrupted in 1648. But the elections had not been a resounding victory for the Presbyterians. Their program of a conditional restoration had been openly criticized at some of the polls. Charles and Hyde were more interested in hearing from George Monk. Through John Grenville, Charles's good friend from boyhood and Monk's cousin, the general advised the king to move gingerly. The mood in England was for the monarchy, but that was more out of a familiarity with the alternative than any love for kings. The worst thing Charles could do would be to give the people a reason to doubt their enthusiasm. Monk was tactful enough to avoid directly mentioning the poor public relations track record of Charles I, but the message was clear. 
The moment called for graciousness and generosity, not haughty arrogance. Monk also suggested that the royalist court relocate. If Parliament did offer an invitation to the king, it would be better that it not be sent to an address within Spanish territory. Charles saw the logic of this and immediately moved his entourage to the Netherlands. England had had its run-ins with the Dutch recently, but politically speaking, the Netherlands was a far more suitable base. A lesser king might have bristled at Monk's presumption to give advice, but Charles, closely advised by Hyde, treated the message as the best news they had heard in years. For the first time, Monk was expressing his friendship to the Stuart cause. Both men took the general's advice to heart. His intelligence on the mood of England, and more importantly, the forthcoming Parliament, was valuable. Hyde immediately began drafting an official response to any overture Parliament might make to the exiled king that closely adhered to Monk's suggestion of magnanimity. In the more immediate term, the royalist court followed Monk's advice to avoid any kind of triumphalism regarding the outcome of the elections. In fact, when Matthew Griffiths, an old chaplain to Charles I, celebrated the elections by delivering a sermon on the divine right of kings in London, the royalist court in Brussels was almost as angry as anyone in England. Word went out to all royalist sympathizers to lay low and let the king handle public relations himself. The stage was now set for Parliament to meet. On the 25th of April, the men gathered at Westminster. Although they had a massive task ahead of them, coming up with a comprehensive political settlement, the question facing the Parliament was simple. What conditions ought to be placed on the king? The best organized group within Westminster were the Presbyterians. They had come with a prearranged plan in mind, and so executed it immediately. The first step was to consolidate control over Parliament. By necessity, this would be a two-pronged operation, as since this was a free and full Parliament, it included both the House of Commons and the House of Lords. The Presbyterians secured an early victory when one of their leaders, the Earl of Manchester, was selected Speaker in the Lords. It was an obvious choice. Manchester had served in that capacity before the Lords were dissolved in 1649. It also helped that the status of openly Royalist Lords was in dispute, Many of them were still at the Royalist court in exile anyway. With Manchester directing affairs, the Royalist peers could hopefully be kept away from Westminster, at least long enough for Parliament to come to a decision on the King. Meanwhile, in the Commons, the Presbyterians based their strategy around the 62 Royalists who had been elected to Parliament. Technically, by the election rules set down in March, they were ineligible to take their seats. Excluding those MPs would eliminate a large block of voters who presumably intended to invite the King to England with no preconditions. But there were two problems. Actually enforcing the ban on Royalist MPs depended first on getting the rest of the House of Commons to formally contest their elections, and secondly on physically preventing them from taking their seats, which would likely mean the cooperation of Monk's soldiers. Though the first test actually came in the House of Lords. Here, too, the issue was who could legitimately sit at Westminster. Over the course of the 1640s and 1650s, the Stuarts had rewarded many of their loyal allies with promotions to the ranks of the aristocracy, the royal court having little in the way of cash or property to bestow. As many as 145 men could claim status as peers of the realm. But the vast majority of them were in exile. On the first day of the Parliament, only 10 men gathered in the House of Lords, a group that Manchester felt he had no problem steering in a Presbyterian direction. The challenge came from a group of 36 aristocrats, known as the Young Lords. For the most part, they were men who had inherited their titles after the outbreak of the Civil War. Their fathers had served the royalist cause, but most of them had been too young to join in the conflict, which posed a problem for the Presbyterians. Could they justify excluding these men for the crimes of their fathers? It became the all-important question at the beginning of the session, 
How far could the principle of open parliaments be stretched? It's plausible that the Presbyterians could have formed a convincing case to bar lords who were unrepentant royalists, or had been elevated to the peerage by Charles since the Civil War. But preventing men from taking their rightful seats, purely because of what their fathers had done in the war, or out of any expectation of how they might vote, could not be squared with the spirit of 1660. The decisive moment came when George Monk flatly ignored all calls to use his troops to prevent the young lords from sitting. It was a blow from which the Presbyterians never recovered. In fact, in their minds, it was a betrayal. Monk had finally revealed his true colors. He was himself a royalist. By the third day of the session, the 27th of April, it was clear that the Presbyterian gambit had failed. In the absence of any guiding hand at Westminster, the House of Commons failed to move beyond banal procedural matters. In large part, because in the context of 1660, procedure suddenly didn't seem so banal. The key moment came when the Commons discussed the appointment of a sergeant-at-arms for the session. Normally, not an especially contentious affair. But in this case, several members argued that traditionally, the king played a role in such decisions. If this was a truly free parliament, they ought to wait until the king joined them before proceeding any further. Although not everyone was convinced by this line of argument, the House agreed to adjourn for three days so members could think about the matter. In reality, however, Westminster was waiting for word from the continent. Charles was being invited to announce the terms under which he would return to England. It was an opening that Charles and his advisers had spent a month preparing for. Ever since Monk's envoy had visited the exiled court, Charles had been working with a close circle of trusted allies, Edward Nicholas, the Duke of Buckingham's old secretary and the leader of the Royalist faction in Parliament before the Civil War, the Earl of Ormond, the exiled leader of the Royalist faction in Ireland, and most of all, Edward Hyde. The group actually drafted an official letter to Parliament on the 4th of April, a full three weeks before the session began, then waited for the right opportunity to send it. Known as the Declaration of Breda, after the Dutch town in which it was completed, the document was a political masterstroke. Taking Monk's advice, Charles adopted a generous, even liberal posture on four contentious issues that would be at the center of any political settlement. Religion, the status of confiscated lands, the army, and reconciliation between past enemies. When it came to religion, Charles promised liberty to tender consciences and pledged to assent to whatever church settlement the Parliament produced. On the matter of confiscated lands, he deferred to Parliament to find a way through the maze of overlapping claims. He also left it up to Parliament to decide how to settle the wages the army was owed, a necessary precondition for its disbandment. And finally, Charles promised an amnesty to all those who swore loyalty to him within the next 40 days, with the exception of any men Parliament specifically named as beyond redemption. The common theme is perhaps easy to detect. Charles was happy to leave the details of the new settlement to Parliament. He was, in effect, demanding no conditions. Partly, this was a result of the confidence Charles and Hyde had in the mood of the country. They were happy to let Parliament decide because they were relatively sure that Parliament would be generous. But Charles and Hyde were also playing a far more ingenious political game. By starting negotiations without any demands, Charles severely undermined the Presbyterian position. How could men like the Earl of Manchester or Denzel Holes place restrictive conditions on the restoration of the monarchy, when the would-be king had already agreed to put his fate in Parliament's hands? More importantly, Charles and Hyde both recognized that behind these celebrations of the reconciliation, any political settlement would have to resolve contentious issues in religion, land, and the army. The devil was in the details, and no matter what solution was produced, someone would be left disappointed. Charles was announcing his unconditional support for a settlement, a broadly popular position, while distancing himself from the inevitable unpopular nuts and bolts of that arrangement. 
The Breda Declaration simultaneously diffused any opposition, while at the same time insulating Charles from the resentments that would surely arise within English politics. In a sense, it was the most kingly maneuver we've seen in this podcast. Charles was elevating himself above the fray of politics, the factional infighting and petty arguments. Had his father been as politically astute in 1641, the Civil War might have been avoided. You could argue that Charles II faced more favorable conditions in 1660. The new parliament was full of men who had had enough of political turmoil and were willing to return to the predictability of the monarchy. But you could say roughly the same thing about the long parliament before the Civil War. There had been a significant contingent of MPs ready and willing to trust the king to deal with them in good faith. It was only after Charles repeatedly abused that trust with disingenuous statements, sudden changes of heart, and army plots that radical voices became more convincing. Charles II likely wouldn't have thought of it in these terms, but the way he ended 20 years of political upheaval only highlighted his father's responsibility for starting it. And if the Breda Declaration was perfectly calibrated in terms of content, its timing was just as impeccable. On the 28th of April, the day after Parliament paused its deliberations, John Grenville arrived in London, carrying the King's official statement. When Parliament reopened on the 1st of May, the King's Declaration was read out in both the Commons and the Lords. Monk delivered the news to the army, while Montague did the same for the navy. The response was immediate and electric. Later that day, the Commons passed a resolution stating that, according to the ancient and fundamental laws of this kingdom, the government is and ought to be by king, lords, and commons. The reaction outside of Westminster was, if anything, even more jubilant. Maypoles, which had been banned at various times over the past few years as pagan superstition, were thrown up all over England. At Melton Mowbray in Leicestershire, these celebratory bonfires burned for three whole days. One Oxford resident observed that the whole town had gone perfectly mad. The men running the city of London went a bit mad themselves, and immediately issued a loan two times the size of the one Parliament had been discussing. In fact, these spontaneous celebrations were so unrestrained that they worried some officials. Some claimed that there was no legitimate government in England until the king returned to take up his place on the throne. There were reports of enclosures being ripped down, and men treating confiscated crown properties as common land, to the consternation of their owners. More ominously, some took Parliament's resolution as an excuse to strike a blow against the forces of anarchy. Mob violence against Quakers and other radicals began almost immediately. But declaring that England would be governed by king, lords, and commons was only one step towards a restoration settlement. How exactly those three institutions would work together remained unresolved. The overwhelming popular response limited Parliament's range of options and accelerated the process. Having declared England a monarchy, the men in Parliament now feared that the nation would be ungovernable until it had a king. Oliver St. John, one of England's most respected constitutional scholars, estimated that it could take as long as two years for cross-channel envoys to hash out an arrangement with Charles. Far better to bring the king home now and work out the details later. After all, Charles had already agreed to let Parliament determine the course of events anyway. Even the Presbyterians recognized the reality of the situation, at least tacitly. They immediately abandoned their list of preconditions for restoring the monarchy, and instead focused on securing their positions in the new world that was coming. Some angled for jobs in the new royal administration. Others did their best to distinguish themselves from the regicides who had murdered the old king. On the 8th of May, a week after the Declaration of Breda went public, Parliament formally announced that Charles II was the King of England, Scotland, and Ireland. Technically, the Stuart monarchy wasn't being restored. Parliament was acknowledging that Charles had been the king since his father's execution 11 years earlier. 
the constitutional innovations of the Commonwealth and Protectorate period were erased with the stroke of a pen. Two weeks later, Edward Montagu brought a fleet to The Hague to escort England's king home. A 12-man delegation went ashore to visit the royalist entourage. Included in their number was Thomas Fairfax, the man who had led the army that defeated and deposed Charles's father. On the 25th of May, the party landed at Dover, where Charles was greeted by George Monk, another parliamentary general, but the man who had done more than any other to bring about the Restoration. Soon after, Charles II entered London amid three days of joyous celebration. Other men had been celebrated in a similar fashion. His grandfather James, when he came down from Scotland, or his father Charles, when he returned from Spain in 1623, and at numerous times during the 1640s, when he appeared poised to deliver an end to civil strife. Not to mention Oliver Cromwell, or more recently, Arthur Hasselrig. All of them had, in one way or another, fell short of the expectations of the cheering crowds. In just about every case, those expectations had been unrealistic. They were rarely based on an assessment of the hero of the hour. They usually had more to do with relief at delivery from national peril, or desperation to change the status quo. It was unclear as yet which bucket the new king fell into. Charles, who turned 30 while he was feted in the streets of London, had a long reign ahead of him, which would determine whether he was the savior he appeared to be in the spring of 1660. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.